first reading today is from Micah, chapter 4, verses 1 to 4. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills and peoples will stream to it. Many nations will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between peoples and will settle disputes for strong nations far and wide. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Everyone will sit under their own vine and under their own fig tree, and no one will, be, will make them afraid, for the Lord Almighty has spoken. The second reading today is from Psalm 46, and if you can join me in reading the parts in yellow aloud. God is our refuge and strength, an ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth give way, and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea. Though its waters roar and foam, and the mountain quake with their surging, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where the Most High dwells. God is within her, she will not fall. God will help her at the break of day. Nations are in uproar, kingdoms fall. He lifts his voice, the earth melts. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come and see what the Lord has done, the desolations he has brought on the earth. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the shields with fire. He says, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. The third reading is from Hebrews, chapter 10, starting at verse 32. Remember those earlier days after you had received the light, when you endured in a great conflict full of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You suffered along with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. So do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly re rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. For in just a little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. And, but my righteous one will live by faith and I take no pleasure in the one who shrinks back. But we do not belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed, but to those who have faith and are saved. Now faith is confidence in what we hope for an assurance about what we do not see. 
And the final, final reading comes from John 15, verses 9 to 17. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I have learned from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, and so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. This is my command, love each other. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Peter Guy. Bishop Tom Frame, who was the Australian Bishop to the Defence Forces, as well as um, being a leading Australian war historian, uh, has talked about or referred to war in this way. He says, there are things humans start without knowing where or how they will finish, which is true, as he says, for all of us. Like marriage, like parenting, like responses to personal challenges, like leading a group through change, like commencing retirement and wondering what's going to happen for the rest of your life as you live out your life. When war was declared by the British government on Germany in 1914, it was on behalf of the dominions, Canada, South Africa, New Zealand, India, and Australia. No one expected that it would have had the consequences that it had. It would devastate the landscape and produce a death toll unprecedented in human history. In a population of just over 3 million, nearly 60,000 Australians were killed. One in five men who left these shores did not return, and one in three were totally and permanently incapacitated. As well, there were many women who served in the war effort as nurses and in other roles. Every second extended Australian family was personally affected by the war. There wasn't anyone who didn't have a family member, friend or neighbour caught up in the fighting who came home changed by what they had seen and endured. Those who went never expected that they would die in the battlefields of Europe, Palestine, North Africa and Gallipoli. When the war was called, no one expected that it would last for four years and three months. And no one knew the agony that was to be experienced in the field and back home. As we're commemorating those who died today, we have to acknowledge that many of us here are in different places in relation to this commemoration of war and all that it means. Uh, there will be here today, people here today who have been directly personally impacted because of personal family and other connections. And there'll be others who maybe are like me, growing up in the 1960s, uh, who grew up in a family where we didn't celebrate Anzac Day. It was a day to be ignored uh, because it was just a public holiday and you did other things. Uh, my father was a pacifist uh, and, strongly, and strongly antagonistic. So, you know, that's the environment I grew up in. It wasn't one where you celebrated uh, on Anzac Day or commemorated. It was a day that was uh, one we ignored. Uh, so uh, it's only been really in the past decade or so that Anzac Day has regrown to, to the significance that it currently has in our community's life. Well, 2021 marks not only 106 years since the start of Gallipoli, 
the Gallipoli campaign rather, but also 82 years since the start of World War II, 56 years since the Vietnam War, and for 31 years since the start of the Second Gulf War. As we know, Australian troops were, are involved still in various contexts around the world today. Now, the questions in relation to war of any sort, whether it's the Great War or any other war, are pretty obvious, and they've been asked again and again. Was it necessary? Could it have been avoided? What did it achieve? These questions were asked during the war, and they're still questions of contention today, and they're questions that they hover over any armed conflict. Again, Bishop Tom Frame suggests that contemporary Christians have three options reflect when reflecting on the Great War and on armed conflict in general. First, we can denounce the war as being unnecessary and opportunistic, condemn the men who fought for failing to exercise proper moral judgment, mitigate their sins in pointing to the mindless jingoism that the world has since been liberated from. We could redeem the scale of the loss of life by claiming that the war showed the futility of armed conflict while overlooking the fact that it all happened again two decades later. So that's one way of responding. But secondly, we can defend the war as being necessary and unavoidable, condemning the German leaders for their chauvinistic patriotism, interpreting the war as a struggle against barbarism and brazen aggression, and redeeming the human and material waste by pointing to the liberation of the people of Belgium and Holland from the tyranny of the Kaiser. And you could argue, point that, use that argument for any particular conflict that we might be involved in. The third option is to focus on the moral ambiguity of most wars and the personal ambivalence towards political rhetoric of those who are obliged to fight in them. Now, it's easy to see why each of these points of view has their supporters. And there may be some here today who would believe that the message of Scripture is nonviolence and that pacifism is the only sustainable position for the sincere Christian to take with respect to the use of force by civil authorities. This stance declares all wars to be immoral. Now, on the other hand, there will be others who believe that the state sanctioned force is justifiable in some circumstances, but not all. Well, today we've had three Bible readings, each of which give us something helpful to reflect upon when we think about these complex and challenging issues. In Micah 4, the prophet holds out before us a future vision where nations will no longer make war with each other. This is a vision of God's kingdom, on an earthly reality where God's word is spoken and the people acknowledge God and follow his word. God will be the judge, and he is the one that will settle human disputes. As a consequence, as it says in those infamous words in Micah chapter 4, verse 3, they will beat their saws into plowsheds and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. So when God rules in human hearts and his kingdom is established, there will be peace and harmony as people strive to live under God's rule and God's judgment. Now, as Christians, we know that this is God's future vision for humankind. But in the same time, sorry, in the meantime, we seek to play our part to bring forth that vision. Wherever possible, we should strive for peace and for reconciliation. And wherever possible, we should hold forth God's vision for humanity and for the world. Wherever possible, we will strive to seek for freedom and uphold the, the upholding of God's universal guide for human community. In our second reading from Hebrews 11, the writer acknowledges the reality that God's people are not spared from the struggles and conflicts of this life. 
We may yearn for God's kingdom to come, but in the meantime, we live in this world in all of its best parts and at times its horrific parts. As the writer says, remember those who earlier days after you had received the light when you endured in a great conflict full of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You suffered along with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had a better and lasting possessions. So do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. Now these are hard words for us to accept because most of us have lived nearly all of our lives in relative peace. Most of us have never known armed conflict and most of us have never lived in a situation like the writer's alluding to there. But they do suggest that we shouldn't expect that, we will always be, that it will always be the case. And we can't assume that at some point we may not live in a situation where conflict and persecution and hostility could be our lot. Certainly that is the case for many Christian people living in minority situations in many parts of the world today where they face significant hostility, persecution, uh, and many, many face armed rest and violence. As the writer says, but we do not belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed, but to those who have faith and are saved. Now, it could be argued that the Christian values that were fought for and therefore retained as a consequence of armed conflict in the past are under constant threat in any time and at any point, and we have to work hard to keep defending them in our context today. Now, in our third reading, we have Jesus' immortal words that are really at the heart of so many of the commemorations that are taking place across our nation and in other parts today. And these words of Jesus are that my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. The reality is that the example of Christ is the template for sacrificial service. He laid down his life for the whole of humankind. He did it because we needed someone to rescue us from a dire situation. He did set the example for sac of sacrificial service both in the church and in the community and in conflict. Those who valiantly sacrificed their lives in the great and many other wars did so out of love for country and empire, but also out of love for their fellow soldiers, their families and their communities. Today, as we gather together, we want to acknowledge and give thanks for all that we enjoy because of the sacrifice of so many. We live in a society where the freedom to associate and to espouse a variety of viewpoints are deeply held values. And in spite of the rage culture in which we currently live, where anyone who says anything that is not considered to be acceptable will be judged very heavily, uh, we still have the freedom to express our opinions. These days, the Christian heritage of those values is often overlooked, but it really is the Christian heritage that has led to those values being in the place where they are in our context. These values and others are under constant attack, and who knows when they may, we may ourselves have to defend them because they're values that we want to sting, cling to and continue to claim. Now, as Christians, we will be passionate for our country, but we won't be nationalists who think that our country can do no wrong and blindly support anything that our country does without question. The role of chaplains in times of war is often overlooked, but the fact that they still have a significant presence in the military today 
is testimony to the enduring value of the role that they do play. And in fact, I was talking to someone yesterday who's just enlisted to become a Navy chaplain, uh, and the, the current military um, authorities are increasing the role of chaplaincy as part of their response to increasing well-being of those in the forces. Chaplains are unique in that they are not involved in military operations but are on the front line with the troops. Now, it's often said that the impact of the two wars, world wars, was the end of faith for many. Enduring the horrors of the trenches had led to many to question the goodness of God when so many endured such hideous suffering. That's one part of the story. But at the same time, the most precious book for many soldiers was the Bible that was given to every soldier. British military chaplain John Lewis Bryan wrote war chaplain in the brutal Japanese POW camps in Malaya during World War II, recalls that one request of all ranks was for a Bible. Had 10,000 been available, they could have been given away in a month, he said. The few copies available had to be loaned out for short periods of time and were in constant demand. Ernest Gordon, a Scottish officer and POW who was converted to Christianity by the self-sacrificial example of Christian chaplains and laymen on the Thai Burma Railway, described one of the many informal Bible study groups that sprang up among the Australian soldiers in the camps. An Australian sergeant dropped in one evening. He'd been talking things over with his cobbers. Most of them, he told me, had called themselves Christians, but they had been so shaken by their experiences that they were wondering if they may not, may not be something in this Christianity that they'd failed to understand. Now they wanted to give it a whirl. The sergeant was emphatic about one thing. His lads wouldn't stand for any Sunday school stuff. They wanted the real dingo. I faced the group the next evening in the bamboo grove. There were several dozen of them. Dozen of them. At each successive meeting, the numbers grew. Through our readings and discussions, we gradually came to know Jesus. He was one of us. He understood our situation, our problems, because they were the kinds of problems that he had faced himself. Like us, he often had no place to lay his head, no food for his belly, no friends in high places. He too had known bone weariness from too much toil, the suffering, the rejection, the disappointments that make up the fabric of life. Yet he was no killjoy. He was a working man, yet one who, who was perfectly free, who had not been enslaved by economics or law or politics or religion. And in the light of our new understanding, the crucifixion was seen as being completely relevant to our situation. It told us that God was in our midst, suffering with us. Well, today is a solemn day, but also a day of thankfulness. We remember that those from our community who died of, or were wounded, and we'll pray for those who played, for us to play our part to ensure that war on such a scale never happens again. I'm going to finish with those, the immortal words from Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 1 to 8. There is a time for everything and a season for every activity under the heavens, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to uproot. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to tear down and a time to build. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to scatter stones and a time to gather them. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to search and a time to give up. A time to keep and a time to throw away. A time to tear 
and a time to mend, a time to be silent and a time to speak, a time of to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. Liz is going to come now and share stories uh, from people from St. Collins. Thank you, Liz. Memorials are interesting things uh, which tell you as much about uh, those who created them as those whose memory um, they are erected for. Uh, there are a lot of memorials around here. Many of them uh, give quite a lot of detail about who the people were. Um, the memorials to the World War I soldiers are much more spare. Um, there, in uh, 1920, the people of St Columns Church raised funds to honour those from the parish who had served in the Great War, 1914 to 1918. And as Stephen said, the uh, number of those who served and the number who died in, in a small population um, was quite great. Uh, many were disabled uh, and most families would know somebody who uh, was affected. Um, there are three principal memorials in this church to, to those who served. Um, there's an, the honour roll at the west end of the church with the small AIF window and it lists those St Columns people who en enlisted. And there is the east window behind me uh, with a silver plaque beneath it, it which lists those who died on active service. The memorials were funded by public subscription and unveiled on November the 14th, 1920. Uh, and a quote from uh, the um, parish bulletin. The whole ceremony was deeply impressive and closed with the singing of the Hallelujah Chorus by our church choir and the sounding of the last post. On the honour board at the back are 225 names and of those 225 souls, 59, some 26% were killed or died of wounds or disease, uh, which is a little over the national average. Uh, for each of those people who enlisted in the army or who died or who those who were wounded. There was a family and a community such as this one uh, which was affected. And in 1920, as people came to worship here and saw the names listed on that board, they would have remembered the young men whose names were there. I like to think they remembered the, the boys who were uh, naughty in Sunday school um, and, and I imagine there were the young men who made all the girls' hearts flutter, um, but they certainly would have remembered who they were. Um, the memorial lists only initials and uh, surnames, uh, no rank, um, all are equal there. Um, so I'll just tell you about a couple of young men. Um, one particularly young. Jim Martin is considered the youngest Australian soldier to have died on active service. He'd been part of the cadet corps when he was at school at uh, Glen Ferry Primary School in Manningtree Road. He was born in Tokenwall, but the family moved to Melbourne. His father was a cab driver. 
1915, he left school, uh, which was not unusual, um, and was working as a farmhand. And the family was living in Mary Street in Hawthorne, uh, where his mother had a boarding house. Um, when Jim's father, Charlie, was rejected for military service, Jim decided that as the other male in the family, he would serve in his place. Um, the enlistment age was 21 years or 18 years with written permission of a parent. Jim persuaded his mother to give permission on threat of using a false name and not contacting her should he be deployed. He was four years below the permissible age to enlist and he was 14 years and nine months old when he died of typhoid fever off the coast of Turkey, having served at Gallipoli. His memorial is at the Lone Pine Memorial and on the Gallipoli Peninsula. Um, if some boys raised, uh, raised their age, though they could enlist, some older men declared themselves to be younger. Um, Peter Cornelius Blom was 54 when he enlisted, but stated that he was 10 years younger. Um, he served in administrative roles, but uh, was discharged due to ill health. He may have been prompted to enlist when his 17-year-old son uh, enlisted, uh, stating he was 18. Um, his son, Ronald Champ Blom, known as Jack, uh, enlisted in the first uh, Australian Imperial Force when he was 17, uh, and that was three months before his father enlisted. He was born in Studley Park, Kew, uh, but the family was living in Auburn Grove, Hawthorne, when he enlisted. His mother died when he, Jack was four years old, um, and she came from a long and distinguished line of military men, her grandfather being Colonel Champ, the former Premier of Tasmania and perhaps this influenced his decision to join up. I can tell you that Jack was five foot seven inches tall, which was probably about average for uh, the soldiers on the list. Some were uh, just over six foot, but mostly they were um, five foot four to five foot seven. Oh, I, can't, I can't convert that. You'll have to convert that yourself. He had blue eyes and light brown hair. He'd served in his school cadets um, and he was working as a farm labourer when, uh, when he enlisted. He was not yet 20 years old when he was killed in action in the Third Battle of Ypres in Belgium and his memorial is on the Menengate Memorial at Ypres. Um, there were uh, not only soldiers who enlisted, we have two nurses on, on this list. Um, there were people from many walks of life who enlisted from this, this church. Um, and uh, many were involved quite deeply in the um, life of this congregation. Um, and I can see in a couple of um, excerpts from um, church bulletins um, the way in which uh, some of the young men were really serving in their local community before they served um, in uh, military service. Uh, so this from August 1916. Private Henry Frencham Mode, who had been the enthusiastic leader of the men's orchestra at our men's services, has died from wounds. He was a devoted helper in our men's work and won many friends.
and in January 1917. We deeply regret that Private Stanley Elliott, younger son of Mrs. Elliott of Lisson Grove, died of wounds in France on December 30th. He passed through our Sunday school and was confirmed in St. Columns. We have the memory of a bright, manly fellow who offered his life in the freshness of youth. He died within a few days of his 21st birthday. We sincerely sympathize with his mother, sisters and brother who is serving in the same battalion, lest we forget.